Good morning. It sure is good to see everybody this morning. We're starting a new quarter today, as is evidenced by the fact that I am here and David and Brent are not. Uh, and I know you had a really good study of the last part of the United Kingdom last quarter. Happy to be out here with you and uh, looking forward to this study of the divided kingdom. There is a bit of a syllabus uh, provided for you on the pew that's out in the foyer against this back wall. If you didn't get one of these yet, please pick one of those up so it'll give you uh, the readings that we need to do before each class period so you'll know what we're talking about uh, in Scripture as well as uh, some references in Bob and Sandra Waldron's book, Till There Was No Remedy. Uh, if you don't have that book and you like a copy of it, we can probably get you a hard copy or a PDF, however you like that. If you want a PDF, let me have your email address and we'll try to get that to you. Uh, in any case, it's a great section of uh, scripture. I'm looking forward to studying it. There are things in this that we're really familiar with and things in it that we probably uh, haven't thought about since the last time you studied the divided kingdom four years ago. So it's, it's a, a lot of interesting information, quite a bit of detailed information. Um, just a quick review. We don't have uh, time really to give a full review this quarter. Uh, we're, we're down a couple of class periods from what you had last quarter. Uh, the number of classes we'll have this time. So um, I'm going to just do a really quick run-through of a few things, and then we'll get into uh, the first lesson. Uh, here at Eastside, of course, as most all of you know, we base our Bible classes on going through the entire Bible, looking at 17 periods of Bible history. Now, uh, th this is an approach that Bob and Sandra Waldron came up with. You could divide Scripture and organize it into however many periods you wanted to, probably. You know, I always grew up with the um, patriarchal, mosaic, and Christian dispensation way, three, three big categories of dividing. But uh, this 17 uh, periods of Bible history really breaks it down for us so we can, we can see the flow of it, which is the big thing, to understand how it flows together. It's one continuous story. We start out with uh, creation, uh, mankind before the flood, introduction of sin into the world, and then leading up to the flood where there's a recreation, if you will, God sparing Noah and his family. Then you have the scattering of the people, scattering of the languages at the Tower of Babel, which is a significant event in human history. And then you come to the time of the patriarchs, uh, starting really in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham uh, is given three promises, promises that from his seed there would be a nation which would inhabit a land, and from his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. These three promises were repeated to all three patriarchs, uh, the Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Uh, and really the entirety of the rest of the Bible is God fulfilling those three promises that were made to the patriarchs. So important facts when you go through the last half of Genesis, all of Genesis really, and you come to the end of Genesis, of course, and Jacob and his family wind up down in Egypt in the land of Goshen in the favor of Pharaoh, but it wasn't long before they were brought into bondage and submission, slavery by the Egyptians. And God called them then out of the land of Egypt in the book of Exodus, sent Moses as their deliverer, brought them out by a mighty hand by the ten plagues through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where He gave them a covenant. And they would be His special covenant people from that point on. And so you have this incipient nation coming out of uh, Israel, coming out of Egypt, called Israel, the nation of promise, uh, 
they are given the land then as you go through Exodus into the wilderness wandering that 40-year period of time where they didn't first get the land because of their disobedience, but ultimately invasion, conquest, God gives them the land, they settle the land through the period of the judges, uh, which lasts nearly 400 years. And uh, during that time, God raising up judges, you have the cycle of obedience and blessing, then uh, apostasy falling away, and God causing bad things to happen as a result of that, then repentance uh, and restoration, and the cycle goes on and on and on several times, many times through the period of the judges until they ask for a king and God gives them a king. In the 120 years of the United Kingdom, we've just studied Saul, David, and Solomon, their reigns and uh, significant literature of that period as well. That brings us to what we're going to be uh, broaching today, the period of the divided kingdom. As we study this, as I mentioned a little bit ago, uh, we'll be looking at specific references in Scripture and then um, the material that Bob and Sandra Waldron uh, created to cover this um, section of Scripture. After the divided kingdom, uh, you come to a time when the northern kingdom is going to be taken captivity by the Assyrians in 721 B.C., Judah will remain as an independent kingdom until 586 when it's destroyed by the Babylonians. And there are 70 years of captivity. You have the return from captivity, the rebuilding of the temple, the settling of the land. Uh, And then after that, there's 400 years of silence where God doesn't say anything to them through his prophets. Until you come to the New Testament, the life of Christ, uh, him living perfectly, dying shamelessly, and being raised from the dead uh, to reign over his kingdom. So you have the establishment of the early church and the letters written to Christians. That's the entirety of our view of the 17 periods. So as we study the divided kingdom, as I said, the source of our study is the Bible text. And so please read the text for each lesson. Read it multiple times if you can before each class period. The organization of the lessons, again, the historical background, the geographical information, All of that's going to be resourced from uh, Till There Was No Remedy, um, the book by Bob and Sandra, as well as a a lot of other references that I'll bring in occasionally here and there. Um, Prophets during this time period will be introduced and inserted into the Bible narrative uh, when God sent them with a specific message to convey His will. So we'll look at Elijah and Elisha and many other prophets uh, during this time period. So in studying this section of uh, Bible history, one good little hint that Bob and Sandra bring up, and I think it's uh, maybe good to get this on the table to begin with, a lot of information is duplicated in uh, 1 and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Uh, Those Bible books tell pretty much the same story, but with a different emphasis. So 1 and 2 Kings emphasize events taking place in Israel, the northern kingdom, and the Chronicles, Second Chronicles especially, emphasizes what's taking place in the southern kingdom. Now that's not hard and fast, but that's generally. So we're going to be looking at two kingdoms and looking at them at the same time. There is a lot of confusion. There a lot, some of the names in the southern kingdom are the same as the names in the northern kingdom. And you know, which one of these guys are we talking about here? And uh, what, you know, how is this going on? It's like trying to watch two movies at the same time, right? It's, it's really not easy to do. Uh, but... We're going to do it anyway, 
and uh, we'll try to keep everything straight for you. If you get confused, uh, just rest assured, some of the rest of us are confused as well, but we will uh, we'll try to sort it all out. Don't get frustrated. I remember back when I was preaching at Oakland years ago, uh, we went through the divided kingdom, and uh, we gave all of the teachers uh, from the little ones all the way through the adults, one quarter to teach the whole divided kingdom. Oh, the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. It was, <laughs> it was just beyond. So we're thankful here that we can have two quarters uh, to teach the divided kingdom, and that's really not enough, uh, but it's uh, what we can uh, give to it, and I think we'll do uh, adequately. The prelude to the division of the kingdom is something you've already looked at if you've been out in this class. Um, the kingdom's going to divide because of Solomon's unfaithfulness. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 11, at the end of the reign of Solomon, the text tells us, verse 1, Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, all of these people, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon clung to them in love, and his heart was turned after their gods. And he built shrines and um, altars to Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, in verse 5. He built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, where People would sacrifice their children uh, to Molech, also the abomination of uh, the Ammonites. And so these nations that surrounded uh, Israel because of Solomon's marriages and because of uh, the intermingling of the cultures had a huge impact on the people of God during the reign of Solomon especially. And uh, the spiritual and religious uh, integrity of all of Israel was greatly diminished by Solomon and his failure to be faithful to God. So you come to verse 9, and it says this. You've probably looked at this, I'm sure, already. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep the, what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, statutes what I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen." So the die is cast. This is what God has said is going to happen. And this is what does happen in this text. When you get to the end of uh, chapter 11, uh, there's a prophet by the name of Ahijah. And through Ahijah, God promises to give Jeroboam essentially 10 of the 12 tribes. Um, again, we're going to look at how, depending on how we're count, counting that, Benjamin winds up going primarily with Judah, as is indicated. Um, Judah is given uh, wholeheartedly to the southern kingdom. You pick up the reading then in verse 26 um, of chapter 11. 
Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against king, against the king. Solomon had built the millow and repaired the damages to the city of David his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing what the young man that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So Jeroboam was again the son of Nebat of the tribe of Ephraim. It was the largest tribe in Israel to the north. Uh, he was valiant, he was industrious, and that aspect of his character prompts Solomon to place him over the workforce of Joseph. Now, if you think about it, that's an odd way of referring to uh, anything at this point. There was no tribe of Joseph. There were the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. But, as we'll see further into the study, Ephraim itself became so large and powerful that sometimes the entire northern kingdom was called Ephraim. Uh, and, and certainly this reference to Joseph probably is the idea that Solomon gave, gave Jeroboam control over not just the tribe of Ephraim, probably not just the tribe of Manasseh. That would have been the two tribes from Joseph. But probably much of the rest of the northern part of the nation. So Jeroboam is given a mighty power, a lot of control uh, because of his industriousness and uh, his valor. Solomon places him in this situation. But what Ahijah tells Jeroboam is you're the guy that God's going to give the rest of the kingdom to. Uh, God is going, you know, he tears up these uh, strips of, of uh, a garment, and here's all these strips that God's given these to you. And the thing is, apparently, Solomon found out about it. And so you come to uh, 1 Kings 11 and verse 40. Uh, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. That sets the stage for Rehoboam becoming king. Rehoboam is uh, the son of Solomon by Nama, who was an Ammonitess. So he is of mixed race to begin with. Uh, he is the product of Solomon's sin. Uh, and I have no doubt that he would have been heavily influenced by his mother, as is typical. Um, all of this that Solomon had been doing, uh, Rehoboam had been raised in that culture as far as compromising with the nations around. In chapter 12 then, we open up. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So what happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, and he was still in Egypt, for he'd fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made your yoke, your father made your yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father 
and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. So Rehoboam is, you know, the presumptive king. He comes to Shechem as the king of Israel. And his people from the northern area basically come and say, if you will lower our taxes and the oppression and the burden of all of this labor that we've had, had to be, been doing for, for King Solomon, if you'll, if you'll just ease up on this, we will serve you. You will be our king. Uh, that sounds pretty reasonable. Now, some people might say, well, you know, if, if, they're, if they're making demands of me as the, as the king, uh, they need to learn that I make demands of them. They don't make demands of me. <laughs> and maybe they did need to learn that. You know, you don't want, you don't want citizens who think they can just, you know, tell the king what to do all the time, right? That's not necessarily a, a bad idea. But there was a lot more involved in this. Uh, Solomon had been overburdening the people with taxes and labor and forced labor and taking uh, the best of their goods from them and all of that sort of thing in order to, to feed the uh, really luxurious nature of his kingdom. In any case, Rehoboam says, well, give me three days and uh, I'll think about it. That's probably pretty wise. He doesn't answer them off the cuff. That's, uh, you know, fairly diplomatic. It's reasonable. And um, while he's thinking about it, while you're thinking about it, I'm going to talk about Shechem here a little bit, where Rehoboam has come to meet all the people. This is a picture of this area that I took in 2016 when I was there. Uh, on the left-hand side is Mount Gerizim. On the right-hand side is Mount Ebal. And uh, I'm probably standing in the middle of Shechem, ancient Shechem, when I took that picture. Uh, this area uh, is the location of Shechem, and also in the New Testament, Sychar, where Jesus met the woman at the well, is in the same area. It's modern Nablus, which is regarded as a city of the West Bank. It's Palestinian-occupied at this point, and you'll hear about Nablus sometimes in some of the violence that goes on in Israel because it is Palestinian and they're kind of uh, not in a great situation there, uh, either for the Israelis or the, or the Palestinians. In any case, that's where it is. And it's important, it's significant to me as I think about this, uh, really significant that, that Rehoboam would meet the people here and that the events that unfold regarding the kingdom would unfold here. It's significant because of this. This is where God made the land promise to Abraham. If you go back to Genesis 12, you'll see uh, in verses 6 and 7 that Abram passed through the land uh, to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Shechem goes as far back as Abram, and it was there, apparently, that he was given the land promise. 
A decision is going to be made by Rehoboam and the people of Israel as to who's going to have the land in the text we're looking at in 1 Kings. And it all goes back to a promise God made to Abram. Second thing about this is when the children of Israel entered the land, they were told to go to Shechem and renew the covenant. And there they were to read on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, you might remember, the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy uh, 27, 28, and 29, 28 especially. And there they were to renew the covenant. Deuteronomy eleven twenty nine says, It shall be when the Lord your God has brought you to the land that you go to possess, you shall put the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. He tells them to gather there, to muster there after they enter the land. You read about that in Joshua chapter 8. After taking Jericho, this is where all Israel goes to renew the covenant. They go over all of the covenant. Uh, Joshua makes memorial stones there regarding the entirety of the covenant. So this is where, then, in this time of crisis of the kingdom, all of the nation comes together to determine who's going to be our king. Who's going to be our king? And whether or not we'll accept the line of David as king. So Rehoboam deliberates on Israel's request. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 6. Rehoboam consults with the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer this people? In other words, what, you know, they, they want me to lower their tax burden. They want me to lower their, the burden of their labor. What should I do? And they spoke to him saying, if you'll be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. That's the key about leadership, right? Uh, people will follow a leader who's a servant leader and they'll become his servants. Uh, you know, if, if a person is the leader that he ought to be, by the time Jesus got done with his 12 apostles, when he ascends back to the Father, he'd been leading them and training them and they had committed to being his followers. You had men who were ready to run through a wall for Jesus because he showed himself to be a servant because he was a servant. That's, in essence, the same counsel these people are giving to Rehoboam, the counselors of Solomon, saying, look, if you'll be their servant, they'll be your servants forever. That's wisdom. And it makes sense. That's not what Rehoboam wanted to hear. Verse 8, of course, he rejects the advice which the elders gave him and consults with the young men who had grown up with him who stood before him. Now, young there is really relative. Uh, how old is Rehoboam? Anybody know? 40. 40 years old. So he's not wet behind the ears, you know, 18-year-old, whatever, just grow, grew up kind of person. And it's not talking about consulting with a bunch of teenagers here. But it's also not talking about consulting with people of a whole lot of experience who've been around Solomon, who understood the nature of wise choices and what it took to rule. Um, these are the guys he grew up with. They were, we would probably say, middle age, but they're young compared to the others. He's the one, these are the ones that Rehoboam wants to listen to. What advice do you give? 
And the young man who'd grown up with him spoke this way in verse 10. Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. In other words, you thought my father was you know, growing fat on you. My little finger is going to be thicker than my father's waist. He's, he's saying, I'm, I'm just going to expand this exponentially. What I'm going to take from you and how you're, you know, how you're going to um, supply what I think I need. Um, and they advised, now whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you, this version says, with scourges. I will chastise you with scourges. Of course, they have Rehoboam's ear and he listens to their advice and he follows this really just awful advice. In your translation there at the end of verse 11, as I said, it might say scourges, it might say scorpions. It's an interesting word study. Uh, One of the definitions, in fact, the footnote in my Bible says, scourges with points or barbs as opposed to a whip. My father used a regular whip on you. I'm using uh, one of these scourges like the cat of nine tails with the bone and the, the, the rocks and stuff tied on to the end of the strands. And that's going to not just hurt you when it hits you, it's going to cut deep into you and leave scars and cause bleeding. So that's the difference. But it's interesting, the word study is this, that literally in Hebrew, the word means scorpions. It's used here to mean that kind of a whip. And so I think this translation of a scourge is a good translation. But the, the literal word in Hebrew is the word for scorpions. They're really going to sting, really going to hurt. Uh, and so that, I think the, the old King James translate that, translate that scorpions. In any case, he's promising pain is what he's promising. You thought it was hard when my dad was just whipping you. I'm going to cause pain and uh, oppress you extensively. He tells them that, starting in verse uh, 12. All the people came back to Rehoboam on the third day. And then verse 13, the king answered all the people, roughly, it says, and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. He spoke, according, he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. My father made your yoke easy, or heavy, I should say, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, and I will chastise you with scourges. So it happens. And verse 15, I think, is a critical verse. Whatever lessons we might take from this regarding paying attention to the older council and the wiser people, you know, how to deal with people when you're trying to be a leader, there are a lot of good lessons here about that. But none of that really matters. If, if, if Rehoboam um, had had a lick of sense, you know, it would still be the case that God was going to take the kingdom from him. But the text in verse 15 explains it this way. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. God's going to do what God's going to do. And he's going to work his providence and events in human history 
cause things to happen that he wants to happen, no matter what you want to happen or anybody else wants to happen. All of this is done. I don't see God taking away people's choices, their free choice. I don't see him predetermining what people had to do or forcing anybody to do anything. But he used the events to bring about what he wanted to happen, what he had determined would happen. He's like that still, I believe. He, he, he doesn't have to make any of us do anything. He gives everybody free choice. He gave Rehoboam free choice, didn't he? Absolute free choice. And what happened, what happened was what God wanted to happen in the end. And that's the way he is with us. That's exactly how he is with us even still today. Such a great lesson about providence. Providence is not predetermination of a person's will. Providence is giving people free will and it's still happening the way God wants it to happen. That's because he's God. He can do that. It's amazing. Israel decides, of course, has no future in the kingdom ruled by the line of David. Chapter 12 and verse 16. When Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. So we're going home. We're leaving. You're not our king. We're rejecting this. And uh, basically, that is the end of the United Kingdom. Rehoboam and Jeroboam uh, then pretty straightway take their respective thrones. Rehoboam retains control over Judah, verse 17 will say. Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. That's important that it says it that way because there were people of other tribes dwelling in those cities. Much of Simeon was still dwelling in what was Judah at this point and a lot of Benjamin was too. Uh, so it's not like individually you might not have you know, somebody from one of those tribes. You would. You'd have individuals from uh, some of the other tribes still in Judah. But it's, it's the cities, it's the territory really that's being talked about. Uh, the land territory that's given to, to Judah. Um, you, go, you go from there, uh, and this is what was promised. Rehoboam wants to prevent the kingdom from splitting, and he makes a small effort to do that, but it was, uh, to put it mildly, disastrous. Uh, you come to 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue. Uh, various translations treat that differently. He might have been the chief tax collector. He could have been the administrator of the labor force. Probably, if I understand that word correctly, he's probably both. Both the main tax guy and the one who's in charge of all of the forced labor that Solomon had been doing. That's the guy. So this is, I mean, if anybody had any sense, right? <laughs> this is the last guy that you want to send to try to reconcile or placate or get the people who just rejected your, you know, rather domineering response to them. This is the last guy you want to send as a diplomat in any way to try to reconcile this. So, but that's, that's who Rehoboam sends. 
Adoram. But all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. What, what would you think if he stayed there much longer? He'd probably be the next one stoned. He sees that it's going to be a violent response. It's not just that they're mad and going away saying you're not going to be our king. They're going to uh, violently reject and did violently reject Rehoboam as king. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day, as added in verse 19. Jeroboam is made king, verse 20. It came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him, called him to the congregation, made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. So here are the two kingdoms. Initially, uh, you have the southern kingdom that said it's going to take a sliver of part of Benjamin. Simeon is absorbed into it. Uh, you have the land areas of uh, the northern kingdom. Dan actually uh, no longer inhabits that. They've been up here for quite a while. Uh, but these were the basic land areas of the northern kingdom. And all of this is subsumed into Israel. All of this then becomes the southern kingdom. Initially, Jerusalem will be the capital of the southern kingdom, and Shechem will be the capital of the northern kingdom. Shechem, however, uh, will be relatively indefensible. It's wide open. It's not a great place to try to defend. Uh, most of the time of the northern kingdom, the kingdom will be, the, the uh, capital will be in uh, Samaria, the city of Samaria. So we'll talk about that in later events. So here's the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, ruled by Jeroboam, ten tribes, larger in land mass and overall population by far than Judah. Uh, southern kingdom, ruled by Rehoboam, uh, two tribes, included Simeon, as I said, uh, left intact for David's sake. And that's what we'll be looking at for the rest of this quarter. These two nations, rivals at times, uh, competitors at times, cooperating at other times, strangely, uh, as, as you go through. And it's an it's a up-and-down relationship between the two nations over time. Uh, Israel is going to have not one good king to sit on its throne, not one, good, not one king that was really even marginally faithful to the Lord. Judah will have a number of good kings, uh, but many evil ones as well. Uh, and the tension between Israel and Judah will form a lot of the story, storylines that we'll be looking at uh, going forward this quarter. So just quickly, uh, a couple of lessons I think you get out of this, maybe more than a couple, but a couple of things to notice. You know, the counsel of the aged and experienced should usually be given credence. Uh, it's not all the time. I think of the book of Job. Uh, Job's three friends who were the older wise men really didn't have the answers. Elihu speaks up at the end of the book of Job and says, I, I'm young and so I've let you guys talk, but I've really got some things to say here. And Elihu was right about almost everything he said and the older guys uh, didn't get it figured out. But most of the time, with age there's wisdom uh, and the gray head should be given respect if it's found in the way of righteousness, Solomon said. So that's uh, worthy to note. Rehoboam would have been a lot better off by listening to the older counselors.
and that's the case most of the time. The other thing is, and I mentioned it already, God works His providence in human affairs to accomplish His will. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's something you, you just have to be in awe of, how He does this over and over and over again, uh, working things to the counsel of His will. You think about Joseph winding up down in Egypt, saving the Egyptians and then saving his own family. Uh, all of the turn of events, you know, sold into slavery, <laughs> all of the terrible, the prison, all of the terrible things he had to go through to wind up being elevated to second only to Pharaoh in Egypt and to, and to save people far and wide, but also to save his family and give them a place to come to, to grow the nation. All of that was the providence of God. Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? Think about Esther. Here she is in captivity, uh, still serving a foreign king, the wife of a foreign king. Who knows but what you didn't come to the throne for such a time as this, Mordecai says. Everything that had to happen for her to be the queen. God's working His providence. Philemon, Paul writes to Philemon, he's, he's found this runaway slave, Onesimus. Now he's a Christian. Paul's sending him back. Paul says, who knows, but God didn't work this out so that this could happen just this way. We don't understand the providence of God. We don't know how He works it. We don't know, we always know that He works it, but we know that He does, if you, if you will. Anyway, couple of really thoughtful lessons here at the end. Alright, so we've got more ground to cover each time. We'll be looking at uh, the rest of 1 Kings 12, part of 1 Kings uh, most of 1 Kings 13 uh, 2 Chronicles 11 uh, in the next lesson which will be a week from today because I think there's a singing Wednesday night that gives you plenty of time to read your Bibles and uh, study over this lesson. Thanks.